Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show I talk to Lee Cronin, director of Evil Dead Rise, who's on course to be the highest grossing Irish filmmaker at the global box office this year. I also talk to filmmaker Graeme Cantwell and actress Amy Joyce Hastings about their new coming-of-age and coming-out romance, Who We Love. Plus, journalist and former cyclist Paul Kimmage chats about his favourite movie. Plus, your chance to win Magic Mike's Last Dance on Blu-ray. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well and life is treating you well as you emerge into summer with May just around the corner and the long bank holiday weekend. I had an interesting interaction this weekend, or this week. I was in a shop, a large German discount retailer, let's call it, and I was doing some food shopping. And I got talking to a guy I know in the queue. And this other guy kind of heard me talking and started looking at me and staring at me. And I eventually said, are you okay there, buddy? And if what he said, there's younger ears listening, please turn off the radio for a second or let them leave the room. But he said to me, are you the fucker off the radio? Pretty much like that. And I said, I I guess I am. And he said, good man. And then left. True story. So it was an interesting interaction I had this week. There will be more interesting and less sweary interactions in the show this week. Now in TV this week, I was watching this. Well, then what's going on? You seem all riled up. Babe, come on. Talk to me. Okay, well, um, you know, after the meeting, I was sitting in the parking lot thinking about how many meetings and calls I've had to do for the last two years. Still, somehow, there's no offer coming, and it just really got to me, you know? So then I started driving, and then there was this guy... Before you spiral... I'm going to have to stop right there. Take a deep breath. Pause. you got to start focusing on the positive, okay? You know, maybe we should start doing the gratitude journals again. Now that is Ali Wong talking to her husband in the Netflix show Beef. Now you may have heard of this and I'm a couple of weeks late to the party, but I'm glad I came to the party. In this, we have Ali Wong, who's the comedian, stand-up comedian and actress. She was in a great Netflix movie I've spoken about before called Always Be My Maybe. Very funny lady. And she's a great actress, great comedic actress. And in this, she plays a kind of well-to-do Asian-American who's some kind of lifestyle guru on the verge of making lots of money, money, married to a kind of insipid husband. And she has a road rage incident with a guy called Danny, played by Stephen Yeun. And they both become obsessed by this road rage incident. And over 10 episodes, kind of interact with each other, track each other down, get into each other's lives in bizarre ways. Uh, Steve Young's character is kind of a construction worker who's probably a little uncomfortable outside the law at times due to a cousin of his. He also has a brother he's uh, trying to mind. 
And it's kind of two different socioeconomic paths they're both on in, in terms of being Asian America in America. And it is absolutely wildly entertaining. And has that, God, we got to watch another episode. And it's really strange, the storytelling in it, where it goes and what it does and where it takes you. It's absolutely brilliant. It's called Beef. It's on Netflix and you should really watch it. I'm, I'm, I'm raving about it because I thought it was wonderful. Occasionally the story becomes maybe slightly unbelievable, but man and woman. It holds your attention. It really does. So that's Beef, now streaming on Netflix. Brilliant. Each episode's about 35 minutes. So, you know, you know the way I like these uh, nicely lented episodes. Nicely lented? I'm not sure if that's a phrase, but you know what I mean. And talking of nicely lented, uh, I finished The Mandalorian, all eight episodes. We've talked about it before. We're not sure if that's the final season. It was season three. It certainly wrapped up nicely. I did enjoy it. I thought the final episode was very good. A few missteps along the way. There's episode five, I think it is, where Jack Black, Lizzo and Christopher Lloyd show up and it's it's like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's just weird. It, it, it didn't make a huge amount of sense to me. But it was it was good. I saw the great Brian Cox, the physicist and smart guy, whose opinion I respect on, you know, things, I guess, but saying that, you know, the finale of this season of The Mandalorian was the best thing since The Empire Strikes Back. I think that's stretching it. It was a good ending, but I'm still left with a slight sense of we possibly need to wrap up the story of The Mandalorian and indeed Grogu, which they did wrap it up, but I think maybe it should stay there. So look, let me know if you followed uh, the season of The Mandalorian on Disney+, Plus, or indeed you've been watching Beef on Netflix, or if anyone swore at you in a supermarket because they recognised you. And as I mentioned earlier, we have a competition this week. We five copies of Magic Mike's Last Dance on Blu-ray to give away. Mike Lane, that's Magic, Channam Tatum, takes to the stage after a lengthy hiatus. That's as a stripper, incidentally, following a business deal that went bust, leaving him broke and taking bartender gigs in Florida. For what he hopes will be one last hurrah, Mike heads to London with a wealthy socialite played by Selma Hayek who lures him with an offer he can't refuse and an agenda of her own. With everything on the line, once Mike discovers what she truly has in mind, will he and the roster of his new hot dancers be able to pull it off? Well, if you want to find out, why not enter our competition? Simply text or indeed email magic to 53106 or email screentime at newstalk.com and Anne-Marie Kane will pick five lucky winners. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now Evil Dead Rise, which opened last weekend, is going gangbusters, both here and indeed across the water. It was directed by Irishman Lee Cronin. And as you know, it's uh, a follow-on or it's part of the Evil Dead franchise. Uh, Lee Cronin got the keys to the house. It's about a couple of nervy teenagers who stumble upon an ancient malignant text and then play the vinyl recording of it. It's very scary and it incorporates a tense family reunion involving estranged sisters Beth and Ellie. We reviewed it last week and we gave it four stars and I'm awfully glad we did because I'm delighted to say live to Hollywood Lee Cronin is on the line. Hello Lee how are you? Hi John how are you doing? I'm good thanks. Listen uh, it's getting 
great reviews, I have to say. Uh, you know, just at the start, and I'm not going to keep you long because I know you have a lot going on, but to get the keys to this, you know, going all the way back to the early 80s, Sam Rainey, when you found out that you were going to direct it, was it as a guy who loves horror, were you thinking, hallelujah? Well, yeah, look, I was a massive fan of the franchise from when I was younger and and a huge admiration for Sam Raimi as a filmmaker. But like everything, it's it's a journey. So actually, like the first steps were really, I wrote the screenplay for this. So mm. it was finding the storyline um, that got me excited outside of the fact that it was an Evil Dead movie because yeah. I wasn't trying to just make fan fiction here or make a fan film. It yeah. was like trying to tell a story I wanted to tell. So it, in a way that was actually the most anxious time in the whole process was, will I find a story I'm happy to tell or will I have to say thanks, but no thanks, this isn't for me. Thankfully, I found the story I wanted to tell. And then once the guys were very on board, like Sam, Rob and Bruce, the producers were very on board with that. Then I was able to go and have a lot of fun being inventive and trying to create this kind of horror roller coaster. But yeah, it was, there was definitely a couple of junctions over six months where you're like, I think this is going to happen. I think this is going where I want it to go. And uh, as a filmmaker, that's always a really exciting moment. Yeah. And just to be clear, so they came to you and said, you can write the script and also direct it. Yeah, they basically, in really simple terms, Sam knew I loved the franchise and said, mm. like, like you've got an, an open run here. What would you do with an Evil Dead movie? There was no brief mm. at any point. So yeah. I said, give me some time to think about that. And then I came back and I would present them with various kind of um aspects of the story um that it would be about family where it would be set what the themes would be um and then i you know they were very happy with that so then i kind of wrote like a you know a full storyline from beginning to end and pitched that to them and then they said okay let's do a deal for you to go write and direct this um and then you just start writing you know and work away on various Mm. drafts of the script and and develop it so yeah it was it was actually like um a very, very, I said, an open run that I had at it. You know, all Sam said to me is, use the book and make sure the deadites are scary. But after that, go and do what you do, because that's what they were hiring me for, was to bring my vision to it. Yeah, well, mission accomplished, because it's, you know, it's of the Evil Dead family, but it's very much its own story, and you take it in really interesting and scary places. And look, that's the thing, you know, I I say this a lot on this show, that so many horrors just don't scare me, and that's often the problem with something that's billed as horror, but this is genuinely really scary at times uh and eerie it was is maybe it sounds obvious like water is wet but i'm just wondering do you actively sit down and say i'm going to get the scares out of this one or or, or, or does it just bleed in i'm wondering how that works it's, you've got to put a lot of focus and intent into it i think like when i make a horror movie whatever temperature it might be whether it's quiet and psychological or it's really loud and, and in your face, like Evil Dead Rise. Like, it's really important that if you're going to make a horror movie, that it is scary. Like, that's that's your first job. But I think how you make something scary is through character. You have to create mm-hmm. characters that people can identify with in some way and create circumstances that people can identify with. And then once a viewer can actually hook in and understand the world, it's easier to scare somebody. And some mm-hmm. horror movies maybe fall down because the characters are thin, the storylines are not that interesting. There's not a lot of metaphor there, but once, you know, we're all used to being told stories for thousands and thousands of years, it's wired into us and you you want that story to have some originality of character and then you can hook an audience, I think. 
Um, but mm. if it's just a bunch of banal people with scary things happening to them, you tend to start thinking you just want them wiped out and you stop getting scared. Wow. That's a great way of putting it. Young horror writers, please do take note. Now, there's a couple of things, two things in particular I want to ask you. The vinyl, uh, the kids getting this text on the vinyl, it's a great touch. Did you always want it to be on a record? Yeah, look, it was driven by story because the way that I wanted it to, um, the the particular book, which is one of three of these evil books that exist in the universe, I wanted this book to have been buried for the guts of a hundred years. Mm-hmm. And but I wanted there to be a recording of experimentation with that book a hundred years ago. And the only medium that it could have been recorded on back then was like really, really old 78 kind of vinyl. Mm-hmm. So I kind of did my research and it was like, that was the only place I could go if I wanted there to be this vocalization of the incantation and the story and the prehistory of the book and these priests in, in, in Evil Dead Rise that have found it. So kind of, again, necessity led me back to that. But then you find that idea and you're like, wow, I can have a lot of fun with this because, you know, it, the vinyl lent itself to making these really creepy recordings and um, people have really kind of uh, jumped on it and really liked this part of the story. Yeah, it's great. And come here, mommy's with the maggots. Oh, that's, and even the voice. Uh, you know, I did think of the exorcist a bit and all. Was, was that in your head? I'm not saying it's, you know, borrowing from it or it's a pastiche or whatever, but I did think of the exorcist mostly because I was so freaked out by it. Yeah, yeah. I think, look, there's a lot of movies that create influence for me and the exorcist would be one of them. And they're mm. all things I saw when I was very young and they just, they influence how you approach things. So yeah, there probably is a little bit of, of, of uh, a little bit of that almost like horrible cheekiness, I suppose, mm. some dialogue that comes from Ellie, like the mommies with the maggots line, mm. which I remember writing and thinking, I hope this ends up on a t-shirt someday. And <laughs> lo and behold, you can go online and buy official merch with that line on a t-shirt. But I the, bet uh, you can. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, I think in a lot of ways, those kind of lines more come from the fact that the deadites, one of the things I love about evil dead is that they're having a lot of fun in toying and taunting with innocent people. And, mm. and therefore when, when their MO is to play games with you, then they can get pretty kind of sinister with what they say. Yeah. When we reviewed it last week and a shout out to Chris Wasser, who reviewed it very favorably, I hadn't seen it at the time, but I have subsequently, but he, he applauded the length of it. Is it 93 minutes? I think, including titles and credits, it's well credits because the title is over picture. Including credits, I think we're ninety, just just touching on ninety seven. I'd say the movie itself is yeah ninety two, maybe ninety two. Yeah. And w- w- I presume that was because we were having this chat about you know people have lost the art of brevity and storytelling, you know, and and uh, and unless you're Scorsese, I don't know, maybe you know these three hour epics we're all watching. Was it? Were you keen to get it to a tight kind of hour and a half? Yeah, I think that was always on my mind. I think the screenplay, the shooting script was around 100 pages, which if you follow the typical rhythm, that might have been about 100 minutes. But we did trim and cut it down. It's actually the longest Evil Dead movie there's been by about wow. four or five minutes. Like, okay. you know, I, I think like... You Who's know, counting? <laughs> yeah, I know. But the thing was, I knew it's really, again, driven by what you're trying to make. And I wanted yeah. this movie to be a really intense roller coaster people are not going to want to stay on that ride for an hour and 45. It always has to be in and around the 90 minutes so that you go into the cinema, you buy your popcorn and you just have a good time and you're thrust yeah. into this world. And then it's all over before you realize it. I remember when we, we had the European premiere 
in in Dublin uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it would be one of the few screenings where I'd know a lot of people there because there was friends mm-hmm. and family and colleagues. And and so knowing how people look, the fun part was lots of people walked out of the cinema and they looked like they'd been in a wind tunnel. You know what I mean? <laughs> watch they've been grabbing at their hair and head and hands and making noise and everybody came out and looked like they yeah that they just like been standing on the side of a car ferry in a storm um, <laughs> and, and that and that to me was what it was all about you know is that go into the cinema and let me let me just take you on this kind of you know crazy rocket ship ride for 90 minutes and hopefully yeah. give me for all that I do inside that time Wow. So you could see the physical, physical effects on your friends. Well, that, yeah. that's impressive. Listen, two more quick things and then I'm going to let you go. The hole in the ground. Uh, I, it seems to me that all of this success might be coming from that wonderful movie. Uh, do, do you see it that way, that that was a game changer for you? Yeah, I, I, look, I think so. I think at any given time, you're only as good as the thing that you've just made. And I think one of the, the things with the hole in the ground was that it broke out internationally in quite a meaningful way. Mm. Um, you know, we actually did, you know, we actually made more money at the international box office than the movie cost, which the movie was made for, for, for quite a small, uh, modest budget. Uh, but at the same time, I think someone like reflecting, say on this movie, what's when Sam Raimi saw it, what he saw in me was a, a filmmaker that likes to apply a lot of precision and tension and atmosphere which he was attracted to. And yeah, it yeah. opened up a lot of doors, but it's all about what you do with that opportunity. You sure. know? And even tracking back my final short film, Ghost Train, opened up yeah. the doors to make the hole in the ground. So it's all these kind of, these steps on the journey. And now and now here with Evil Dead Rise, there's obviously fresh opportunity showing itself as well. But the hole in the ground for me, obviously making your debut feature film, you know, being being lucky to have that movie premiere at, at Sundance to like, which just gives you that bit of global focus, and then for for lots of distributors around the world to pick it up and want to show the movie in cinemas. It's really exciting for me because I've made two feature films at the peak of streamers controlling the market, but I've managed mm-hmm. to make two feature films that actually have shown up on the big screen for audiences, which is what I'm all about. So it's quite exciting. Yeah, and and people are going to see this in the cinema, which is great. So we salute you for that. And then finally, I'm not sure if you're, you know, too contract bound at this stage, but what's next for you? Yeah, look, I've got a couple of things on the boil. Um, I've got a great relationship with New Line Cinema, uh, who we made Evil Dead Rise with, and and I'm I'm writing a project for them at the moment. And then before I made Evil Dead, I had to put two or three things down. I'm working on a great screenplay. Um, with my writing partner who I wrote The Hole in the Ground with as well. So look, I'm just very happy to have two or three opportunities in front of me. And the goal, I think, as a movie maker is can I get another movie made? And without trying to be too uh, too slippery about it, I'd be pretty happy <laughs> if any any of the two or three things I had on my agenda could could go into production in the next kind of 12 months. That would be the goal. Okay, so the hope is a movie going into production in the next 12 months. That would be it, yeah. I have a bunch of writing to do. That's my, it'll be a, a summer and autumn of writing and then hopefully start some soft prep on a movie before Christmas to, you know, ha- have a nice turkey dinner at Christmas and then <laughs> disappear down the rabbit hole for another 18 months. Fantastic. And do you think that'll be a horror? Look, that's the space I like to play and there's lots that I like within the genre. So yeah. it, what, what, I, what I do want to do from The Hole in the Ground to Evil Dead, they're tonally very different movies. And the next movie I make, I want it to be in another place inside the wider genre as well kind of inside the playpen. So yeah, it's going to be something different. 
Well, play on, my friend. Evil Dead Rise is very much in cinemas and I imagine will be for a good few weeks to come. I've been talking to its writer and director, Lee Cronin. Lee, thanks a million. Thanks so much, John. Cheers. Yes, Lee Cronin there talking to me about Evil Dead Rise, which as things stand, Lee is on track to be the most successful financially Irish film director at the Global Box Office this year. And I got to see Evil Dead Rise and it is a great horror movie. It really is. And kind of the reason you would go into a darkened room and be scared. And uh, it is scary. It is scary. And I'm a tough guy. I don't scare easy. Up next, a coming out and coming of age story called Who We Love. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now opening this weekend is Who We Love, a sweet and indeed serious film about coming of age and coming out. It tells the story of Lily and Simon, best friends who navigate the troubled waters of school life and explore Dublin's vibrant and sometimes dark LGBTQ scene under the sharp eye of reluctant mentor Una. When a misunderstanding with the beautiful and popular Violet leads to a vicious attack, Lily is faced with the greatest challenge of her young life. It was directed and co-written by Graham Cantwell, and the reluctant mentor who I mentioned was played by Amy Joyce Hastings, and they both join me now. Hi guys, how are you? Hi John, how are you? Thank you. Very well. Graeme, if I can start with you, uh, I'm a man in his 40s and certainly when I was coming of age, I remember plenty of, of homophobia, unfortunately. Yeah. Now with my own kids, you know, they're not quite at the age where that's on their radar, but I have this kind of idea that everything's going to be fine now if any of them happen to be gay because, you know, we've had the gay referendum on marriage and I see people walking down the street holding hands and everything's hunky-dory. But I was thinking that's a very naive view of things, particularly when I saw your film, which I enjoyed very much. Was that one of the motivations of it that, you know, you were pointing out that coming out and, and being gay as a young person is still as tricky despite what people like me might think? Yes, absolutely. It it is one of the motivating factors. I have kids myself now, and it was one of the things that that I was very conscious of. When I was a kid, I was bullied um, pretty badly. I was quiet, and I liked to read. um, And in the environment where I was, not all the time, but a lot of the time, being quiet and liking to read, uh, read as gay. You were called gay a lot. You know what I mean. Mm. Um, And it it the thing about the landscape nowadays is it's far more insidious than when we were kids, because when we were coming up, there was no internet, there was no social media. Um, mm. And the, the the proliferation of hate speech, I suppose, on the internet is so widespread. Uh, it's kind of, it goes under the radar a lot. So that's one of the things we wanted to do with this film was to highlight the fact that this stuff is going on for parents yeah. and for young people. We want young people to be able to see this and say, I recognize that, I see it and use it as a way to to, to open up uh, and start talking about it, you know? Yeah, and listen, we'll get to the movie in a second, but just on that, so do you kind of feel things are nearly worse because of social media? There's there's positives and negatives, you mm. know what I mean? Like with anything, the, the, the positives are that it's easier to reach out, it's easier to connect to people online, but the negatives are that there's it's much easier for people to be hurtful and hateful and do it anonymously. 
Um, yeah. and, and, and we don't have the language, we being older people, we don't have <laughs> the language to be able to turn around and say, well, here's how you handle that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But we yeah. do need the young people in our lives to, to talk to us and we need them to know that we're, that's the one thing when I made the, the short film Lily that the, the feature was based on, I wanted to put it out there that you can talk to someone. You, yeah. you should talk to someone because I wish I had, I didn't. Yeah. And if I had, yeah. It would have been a lot better, you know. Sure. Amy, getting to the movie, I mentioned your character, Una, and, and you play her brilliantly because I, I mentioned she's a reluctant mentor and she's almost kind of world weary of, <laughs> of helping young gay people that Simon seems to repeatedly bring to her. Just yeah. tell us a little bit about the character as you see her. Yeah, so World Weary is good. She's an older lesbian, um, and but she's quite funky and kind of mm-hmm. edgy. Yeah, so on the surface, she has very sarcastic, uh, spiky personality. She'd be very, a bit fierce. Um, but underneath it, she's quite soft-hearted. So she's always kind of taking pity on you know, strays as she calls them. So um, <laughs> she, she's a lovely character to play because there's that duality going on, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So she's, and she kind of, yeah, she, she just tries to be tough and that's part of her, her jam is to kind of yeah. this hard shell. And yeah. Sort of, yeah, softy on the inside. The makeup looked interesting. You have these kind of it, it's braided hair, and she's she's very tough looking. The last thing I remember seeing you in was the Callback Queen a while ago. <laughs> uh, it's a it's a very it's a very different part physically. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so yeah, she has blue hair and cornrows and cornrows. Sorry, I'm an old man, but yeah, braids. Um, yeah, so I, we did that for real. We colored my hair and I had the cornrows in for weeks. Um, they were quite tight and painful, you know, but um, the, I think the look is part of what she's advising Lily. At one point, she sort of says, you know, you can be like um, your woman in the dragon tattoo you know yes. like you can there's different ways you can go about because lily's been bullied and she's counseling mm-hmm. her and she's saying well you can be like simon you can have a sense of humor make people laugh they tend to forgive a lot and then she's like or you can kind of scare people free people out of your appearance you know and i think mm-hmm. that's what she did to cope yeah um, so that's very much like that edgy image is a big part of the character i suppose yeah now at the heart of the story graham uh we we have lily and simon played brilliantly by by clara hart and dean quinn but i suppose part of the story i was struck by clara's portrayal of lily in that it is a coming out story but it's not a struggle story the struggle is with the world but she doesn't have a huge struggle i don't think with the fact that she's gay or or have I got that wrong? No, you've got that absolutely bang on. It was something that was really important to me and Katie McNeese, my co-writer on the film from the outset. We didn't, we didn't want this film to be a, am I gay? You know, uh, yeah. it, it, we wanted this film to be, I am. And how do I present that to the world? And how do I either, you know, change myself to fit the world, which is what a lot of young people do, or how do I change the world to fit me mm-hmm. uh, and to accept me? And that's really the journey for her is figuring out how she's going to handle 
the world, not herself. She's not going to change herself. We don't want people to think that. And we didn't want Lily to go through that. We want her, her to be quite definite and definitive in knowing who she is. Uh, but then it's the struggle. It's dealing with, well, how do you deal with that when you come out, mm. when the, the kids in your school start bullying you, when the you know uh, adults start treating you differently and all the fears that go along with that? How is your dad going to cope when you come out? You know, she hears mm. horror stories. There's a scene in the film with um, uh, a character called Naomi, played by Danielle Galligan, where she hears a horror story about how her dad dealt with it. And it's th- those fears that Lily has to deal with. And, and and that's the story is figuring out how she's going to manage all of that. And, you know, one of the things, uh, Amy or, or Graeme, either of you c- can answer this, but I suppose what's interesting is the scene, the gay scene, the LGBTQ scene is painted, you know, that it's not all everyone, you know, doing bingo in the George or whatever <laughs> it is. Like it's, it's, it's painted that it can be slightly dark in the way that anything can be dark. I mean, maybe that's part of the point of the film as well, that there's darkness in all these places. And just because it's a gay scene doesn't make it, you know, doves and roses and, yeah. you know, wild abandoned sex. Yeah. No, we did. Like we, we, when we were on the festival circuit with the short film, Lily, um, Dean Quinn, who plays Simon was yeah. at, a, at a lot of the festivals. With, and I saw quite a bit of what I would have called predatory behavior around him. Um, okay. And I asked him about it. Um, yeah, he's very young. Like he was, he was he sixteen was when we made the short film. Um, and I asked him about it, and he told me he encountered it a lot. And the 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 actor who plays Julian, the the kind of predatory character in the film, mm-hmm. um, James, I, I spoke to him about it as well, and told him I didn't want it to be, you know, the cowboy in the black hat coming in it's got to be a, a, a human story as well and he told me he had encountered as a young actor similar stuff as well so there is a bit of you know a, a, a subversive element and we've also got a, a the AJ character in the film who has been so maltreated I suppose in her life that she mm-hmm. has turned from you know victim to abuser in a way yeah uh, so yeah. there's definitely those elements and and young people have to deal with that for me it was exploring that like you said at the start of this interview you think everything is fine because of the vote and because everything but mm-hmm. it's not it's not yeah. it's 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 like these things are I suppose it's more underground now, but it's still there and it's always yeah. going to be there you know and we may not see it that's part of the point. We yeah. as older people, as adults, as parents may not see it, but it's there. I'm, I'm conscious of the fact, Graeme, we keep collectively referring to us both as old. I know. It's, it's, ter- <laughs> it's a terrible thing to do. Amy, just on that, in, in terms of your character, I mean, did you explore the scene? Did you do any research in that way? I mean, I know it's acting and you, and you probably didn't have to, but, but the way the scene is portrayed, as I said to Graeme, is very interesting. I mean, did you go out and about and soak it up? or? Well, the funny thing is, like, obviously you know being an actor I have a, a, a lot of there's a lot I have a lot of gay friends at the risk mm-hmm. of sounding like the teacher oh, I know I know, I know. I did some, but um, <laughs> and and also we were on uh the festival circuit so a lot of those festivals were uh LGBTQ festivals sure. so there was a lot of like in fact we were on this festival circuit for two years so between the short and the feature yeah I, that kind of was a lot of my social scene <laughs> and yeah I think you know 
there's there's stuff about self-harm in the film and I think um Amy Hughes who plays AJ there's that I always feel like she's the the path that Lily could have taken if she Lily finds her way you know Mm -hmm. um and I think that AJ is more like the toxic like if you don't it's that maladaptive like how you could end up so bitter in this toxic environment so I I just think that's really interesting and Una you know, Una's had her troubles in the past. That's why she and Lily connect and she and Simon mm-hmm. connect. But she does find her way through as well, you know? Yeah, and I just want to clarify for listeners, we're talking about some serious stuff here and all and and the darkness in the scene that we don't usually see. But it is a very uplifting film. And Graham, I gather another motivation of this to make it was that when you had the short film that you mentioned, Lily, you got such a great response from from young gay people that it kind of strengthened your resolve to flesh the story out. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it came to a head in at a film festival in Rome, the Irish Film Festival in Rome, where we we had a screening of the film, and then the 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 woman who organised the festival, Susanna Pellis, said, "Would we?" Sp- stick around and speak to some of the teenagers who were there. And we went into a different room and we sat with them and spoke to them about the film and how it impacted them. And it was really transformative for me. And it was a real eye opener as to how much was going on in their lives and how they could connect to the the bullying and to the, you know, the homophobia mm-hmm. and everything. Um, and it, it kind of, it went on from there. Like I got messages from people in Australia who had seen the film on uh, on flights, and they told me it 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 helped them. It changed their lives. In one case, a young girl came up to me after a screening at the Gaze Film Festival in Dublin, uh, and said she had been self harming and she was going to stop after seeing the film. Wow! Um, and it that kind of thing. We thought, geez, if we could have that kind of an impact with a short film, imagine if we could make a feature film, how much more of an impact it could have if we get it out there, if it gets seen by the right people, you know? So Mm. it's, it's, you don't very often in a career get a chance to make uh, a film that can have an impact like that. So it was very important to me, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure it was also a great film. (laughs) You know, we didn't want it to be a preachy Sunday school sermon kind of a, you know, we, we wanted it to be fun and yeah, funny no, and exciting and you know so so it was finding that balance it, it it is all of those things i have to say as well and, and no one wants to be lectured to and you certainly mm. don't you certainly don't amy j- j- tell me this that as i mentioned the last thing i saw you in was the callback queen it, it's a good while ago but i was thinking you know a jobbing actress who's who's done all sorts of things and even according to your wikipedia page reviewed movies for the pat kenny radio show the idea of playing an an actress who who, you know, is constantly getting callbacks and just that grind of auditions and people asking you to do, you know, bizarre and maybe occasionally unpleasant things in auditions as the film presented. Did that hit home with you a lot? Oh, yeah. Well, certainly I, the the callback queen title was actually from a quip I made about myself. Oh, okay. (laughs) I, I said it to, you know, Graham at the, after Summer Ball, I think it was in London years ago now, because um, that film was shot in London. And I had had a play in the Old Vic and three feature films where I got down to the final two, back to back for 
projects final two didn't get it and then I just went oh god I'm like the callback week <laughs> that became the title so yeah there is definitely an element like it that wasn't much of a reach put it that way okay and Kabir I have to ask uh for for people who don't know and nor should they really but Graham also happens to be your partner who you share a life with and he directed you in this is it strange to be directed by your husband in a film I mean, we, I actually knew Graham for three years and had worked with him as an actress and director before we ever got together. So we mm. go back a very long way. Okay. And we had a professional relationship first. So I don't find it strange at all. And I think when you work on, with a director, any director, you know, over, a long enough period of time you do have quite a close personal relationship like you as an actor in rehearsals you really you talk about the big stuff you know mm -hmm. transformative you know because you're not making yeah. stories about banal life events you're not you know so you do you do get into sort of profound emotional territory with work sure. so I think people are generally quite personable and close in this industry when they work together on things so it's not that different really and we also you know we we have a business together as well we teach screen acting and mm -hmm. so we're used to working together a lot <laughs> well, it's it seems to be working so uh graham can can i finish where we started and i don't want to go all i don't know joe duffy on you if you if you pardon <laughs> it but i was just struck by the fact that you know you said that you were bullied as a kid uh you know, and I don't want to suggest anything like suffering ennobles people or, but here you are a, a film director, you know, your, your short film, a Dublin story from years ago was, was Oscar shortlisted. You, you've, you've had big success. Do you, what do you think of that phase of your life when you, you look back now? Like, I, as I say, I don't want to suggest it made you the man who you are or any of that kind of nonsense. It never should have happened. But what's your sense of being bullied as a child now? It does. It do, I mean, you say, yeah, it does. It actually does impact on who you become as a mm -hmm. person. And one of the things I think it's a choice, like a a Amy Joyce alluded to it earlier that, you know, the, the, the AJ character is almost the road Lily could have taken. I could have gone down a different road. I could have become more cynical and more, you know, uh, uh, hardened by the world because of the bullying. But you either do that or you become more empathetic. Mm -hmm. And that's what I happened to do. It, it just, it, it made me more sensitive to other people's suffering, I suppose. Uh, I remember I was working with a young actor in, in London at one stage and he came into me very upset one day uh, and he was very well to do, very well spoken, very wealthy from a wealthy family. And he was quite, quite cranky. And I said, what's wrong with you? And he, he kind of w didn't want to open up, but eventually I got it out of him. I said, just tell me what it is. And he blurted out, I don't have any trauma. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, he's so worried. He wanted to have some trauma in his life so that he could use it in his work. And I said, look, kid, don't worry. It's coming down yeah. the line. It, everyone yeah. encounters it. Everybody has some form of trauma. And as an artist, it's what you do with that trauma that, that counts. Yeah, if absolutely. you can use it to connect to other people and to, to communicate with other people and have them connect with you and you know just open a, a dialogue in some way about that then it's it's worthwhile you know the 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 suffering can be put to good use i suppose in my case that's i definitely feel that that's a, a quite a formative part of who i was and who i am now came from that 
so so looking back, yes, I wish it hadn't happened, but at the same time, uh, I, I found a way to turn it into something positive. Well, that's a great place to end. Who We Love is an important, hopeful and funny film that is on general release from this Friday, which is the 28th of April. I've been talking to one of its stars, Amy Joyce Hastings, and its co-writer and director, Graeme Cantwell. Guys, thanks a million. Thank you so much, John. Graeme Cantwell and Amy Joyce Hastings there talking to me about Who We Love, which is on general release from this Friday, the 28th of April. Up next, Paul Kimmage on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. I'm delighted to be joined now by Paul Kimmage, sports journalist, former amateur and professional cyclist and author of one of the best sports books ever written, Rough Ride. Paul, how are you? I'm well, John. Thanks very much for having me. My pleasure. Now, we went around the houses a small bit about your favourite movie. You were ebbing and flowing between two, and I might have guided you in one way, but will you tell our listeners what it is? Uh, well, so the one I've gone for in the end, uh, after some deliberation, is uh, Carlino's Way. Um, Wonderful. And it's never been chosen in this slot in four years. Well, I'm really pleased about that because I know the one, my initial choice had been chosen more than one. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't like being too popular or too populist rather. So uh, anyway, it didn't take much to, to uh, persuade me to switch because um, for whatever reason, and I say for whatever reason, because as you say, it hasn't been chosen before. I have always loved this movie from the first time I saw it. And uh, indeed, I watched it again last night. Oh, just, wonderful. Just, well, just to remind myself about what it was uh, that I liked about it so much. Yeah, and does it still stand up, having watched it last night? Well, I think it does. I yeah. think it does. I mean, it still makes me cry. Uh, so that has to be the the ultimate test. It does. It does. So it listen, does. Remind yeah. our listeners what it's about. We have Al Pacino as a man getting out of jail, basically. So Al Pacino, who is a Puerto Rican background, uh, has grown up on the wrong side of the track, uh, gets, goes down for 30 years for whatever, whether it's murder or drugs or whatever. So he's in a 30-year stretch and he's sprung after five, uh, or released rather, after five years by this friend of his, a, a, a lawyer, David Kleinfeld, played by brilliantly by Sean Penn. So he gets out uh, after five years and decides that's it. He's done with crime. He's going clean. He has a plan to just live uh, an ordinary life, if you want, and to get away from New York and to to try and go to uh, the Bahamas and rent cars. And in order to do that, he needs to get about 75 grand together. So he's an opportunity to go into uh, to, to manage a bar and he starts managing the bar. And of course, the problem he's got and the problem I would imagine that a lot of people who've grown up in the way that he has is that he cannot outrun his past. And from the moment he gets out, uh, various people from his past keep coming back, keep looking for favours, and very soon after he gets drawn back into the life that he hopes to escape. Mm, yeah. And there's a gorgeous love interest as well. I don't mean she's gorgeous, and I suppose she is, but I mean it's a beautifully told tentative romance as well. Well, I'm a softie, John, and it's funny you should bring that up because that was the moment when I realised what it was, what I really loved about the film was was that love story at the heart of it. Um, mm. 
the moment when so he's he's had a relationship with with this woman uh, before he goes down and he gets out of prison and he goes tries to find her or sorry he's released rather and he tries to find her then and uh, he sees her coming out of I think the dance studio late at night and he's looking across the road and there she is and you've got that brief moment where you know the coup de foudre as they say in France the, yeah. the clap of thunder where it's still there and he's still he's still mad for her. And that's really the heart of the film, you know, the chance that both of them will will go to the Bahamas and uh, will make a new life for, for themselves. And uh, that's the tragedy, I suppose, of of it, really. But that's what I love most about it. And uh, so it has it has two for me, and are really the same scene, two most brilliant scenes. The opening scene where uh, we see him uh, boarding a train. Uh, are about to board a train with uh, his girlfriend, Penelope Ann Miller. And you might be able to fill me in. I don't remember ever seeing her in anything after that again. I'd never seen her before. She seemed a very odd choice as a, as the lead woman to someone as high-profiled as, as Pacino. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> getting back to the opening scene, they're getting on this train. They're about to, 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 to get out of New York. She he has, he has the money. The new life is waiting for them. And the opening scene is he gets shot, right? But this guy just appears out of nowhere and shoots him. And the medics arrive and they put him on uh, a, a, a bed and they're re- really bringing him out of the hospital. And he's lying there and he's looking up at these lights in the station, Grand Central Station, and he's narrating basically the chances are that he's going to survive this. And that's the opening scene. Yeah. Let me, let me quickly go back to how this has all happened and who he is and where he's come from. And then it finishes with that scene again of him being being wheeled out. And you realize that that's it. he ain't going to make it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I just love it because there's a moment in it where uh, he's, he, he, he's, they're wheeling him towards the hospital and he passes this advertising hoarding on the wall and it's of a girl sunny scene in, in in some sunny island and a girl dancing and um and that stays in his head he he, he sees this and he realized this is what this is this was the dream this is where they were heading and yeah he doesn't make it and i yeah. guess it's I guess the bottom line is there are no happy endings for any of us, really. <laughs> no, we yeah, all far to that heaven, but there are no happy endings. For yeah, any of us. and you've also just spoiled the movie for anyone who hasn't seen it, but that oh, doesn't matter. No, that's why because it I'm does. I'm not very be- good at that. I'm not very good. <laughs> <laughs> it does begin with him being shot, though. So there's kind of a foreboding from day one. So that's fine. And as you say, though, it's that tragedy of and it's it, to borrow a line from another movie. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. You just yeah. have this impending doom. He's not going to be able to escape this yeah he's not and he knows it himself and he really he realizes the moment uh when he knows that he's done that, that there's no gun there's going to be no escape uh and he tries to cover all the angles and almost does and almost gets there and it's a bit like that great stuff great frank sinatra scene in uh, uh is it von ryan's express where he's running for the train mm-hmm and uh, he's got the Germans chasing him up the track and they're shooting him all over and, and he's he's within touching distance of the train and escaping to freedom and he's gunned down and that's the parallel yeah. of this. He gets yeah. so close, uh, Carlito gets so close uh, but doesn't make it uh, and just two stupendous performances. I mean, Sean, Sean Penn's performance as the 
as the crooked lawyer is just yeah. off the scale good. It's so good. It really uh, is. And he doesn't even look like himself as this coked up attorney or whatever. Absolutely. And here, here's the thing. So I watched it last night and I watched it with Anne. And I, so it, it was released, I think, in, in 1993. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't remember going to see it in the cinema. So it would have been an extra vision job for us. And we would have watched it at home. Yeah. And, I, and as we're watching it again, um, we're trying to, we're kind of, we're kind of trying to, to, uh, to, to put it in the context of, of how long. I asked her, well, how long do you think that was ago? So we actually had to Google it, and that, but the thing that really, the thing that really struck was that that final scene, the Grand Central theme, and it's the Palmer. And I said, Jesus, did he do? Did he do the Untouchables? And of course, mm-hmm. he did do the Untouchables, and you can see that you can see a lot of parallels with that great scene in the Untouchables as well in, in the in the station late yeah. at night. And I said, Geez, that, but that had to be after, uh, that had to be after uh, Carlito's way. I mean, Google the Untouchables and it was like six years before. So yeah. I got it, I got it completely muddled, but you could see, uh, you could see the, the, that, the, the um, sort of parallels with that great yeah. scene. It was, uh, it was brilliant. Just well, brilliant. you really did your homework and I appreciate it. Rewatching it and your <laughs> good lady wife sat through it as well. So it I wasn't appreciate it. It wasn't a chore. It wasn't no. a chore. Uh, yeah. John, it wasn't a chore. As I say, I've seen you know sometimes you're sitting there late at night and they put on these obscure sometimes movies and I've seen it a couple of times over the years. Uh, but I it it wasn't a chore to watch it again and uh, no, I loved it. I just great. loved it. Fantastic. Well, we won't have to pay an appearance fee, so that's wonderful. <laughs> listen, that is a great choice. Can I just ask you? I read Rough Ride. I read it about ten years ago. Now that came out in 1990, and and you know, three years before Carlito's Way. I, I don't know what reception it got at the time, uh, what the reviews were. But now, you know, I've heard Eamon Dumphy, I've heard our friends on Off the Ball, I've heard all sorts of people register it as this classic of Irish sporting journalism and, and, and an Irish sports person's story. In terms of where it's at now and, and the, you know, passion people have for it, has it surprised you all these years since that it stood the test of time? Uh, that's been the the greatest thrill, really, uh, John, is that it has, and that it's still, it's still being well received, uh, despite the number. And there have been a lot of books on that theme written since then. Mm. You know, uh, about Lance Armstrong and the whole drug problem in cycling. So mm-hmm. that it's still uh, highly regarded, and that it's still selling, uh, has been a, a great sense of. Uh, of pride and a great thrill to me. I just was on a small thing, given given what we're talking about. So, mm-hmm. I think about a year after uh, it had been published, uh, this young thin man uh, who had a, was interested in getting the films met me in uh, outside the Sunday Tribune where I was working at the time. Ed Guiney and Ed Guiney wanted to buy the rights, or certainly would have made. I think he actually made a bid on the rights. Uh, the film rights for it, you know. Wow. And of course, Ed Ed went on to a, a brilliant career in, yeah. in Element and with all he's done. And uh, so I suppose you know he he was ahead of his time. So now it was never made, and it would be very difficult to do. But uh, that was a that was wow. also a, that was also an early thrill. And I've I've met Ed since. And reminded him of it. We had a good laugh about it. Yeah. But, uh, well, the, yeah, game, so. the, the game isn't up yet. You know, there's, there's still life in you and Ed and indeed me, if oh, I could well, be of any assistance. We have to get someone else to play me, I'm afraid. I'm, <laughs> I'm well past it at this stage, John. Tell me this. Uh, you mentioned Lance Armstrong, and I, I, we don't have time now to get into your long 
relationship with him over the years. But I do want to ask you one thing, if you don't mind. And a clip I've seen many times is you at a press conference at the Tour of California. And you ask him, you know, about Floyd Landis and you say something along the lines of how come you admire these dopers so much? And yeah. he castigates you. He really yeah. does. And I was looking yeah. at it again last night and I'm always struck by this. You know, at the time, people suspected truth was on your side, but but we didn't know for certain, you know, there was, yeah. it, was it was a different time. But like, you know, as they might say in Carlito's way, you got some set of balls on you because the <laughs> atmosphere in that room is like people, you could feel the disdain for you. Like at yeah. the time, did it feel like, I'm going to take a deep breath and ask him this, or was it just you following, you know, the path of what you do? Well, I, I, I'd be lying to, if I said I was totally calm, and uh, um, I wasn't. It was very difficult, very, mm. very difficult. And uh, uh, I was, like, he, he is such, I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing, and I did, there was a lot I found out afterwards. Like, he, 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 he pretends to be surprised at the press conference that he, he doesn't know who I am. He knew yeah. exactly who I, who I was. He yeah. knew exactly that I was there. He knew exactly there was a question coming. So he was well ready for me. He teed me up beautifully and gave me a good old kicking. And yeah. uh, so at the time it was, it was pretty, pretty tough, pretty tough, John, but uh, we could, we could laugh about it now. And like Carlito, poor old Lance couldn't outrun his past either. And uh, he got what, he got what was coming to him. Indeed, that's that's you're a great journalist, Paul. You you bring back where we started up, quoting Carlito's way and sorts. So uh, that's why you are who you are. I want to thank you very much uh, for taking the time to talk to me about your favorite movie. I've been reading and listening to you for years, so it's a real pleasure, Paul. Thanks a million. Thank you, John. Dumb move, man. Dumb move. But it's like them old reflexes coming back. I know what's supposed to happen now. Benny's got to go down. And if I don't do it, they're going to say, Carlito, he's flaky, man. Slacked out. I used to be bad guy. Joint got the Carlito. The street is watching. She is watching all the time. Hold on, hold on. Let him go. What? what? Let him go. Get him out of here. Any other time, that punk would die. But I can't do that shit no more. Don't want to burn nobody, even when I know I should. That ain't me now. All I want is to get my 75 grand and get out. Just do it! Ah, yes. Carlito's Way there. Great film. Al Pacino. It's it's one of his lesser kind of adored roles, but he's absolutely brilliant. And my gratitude and thanks to Paul Kimmage, who, as you heard me saying there, I've been a big admirer of as a journalist and a, and a talker and a writer indeed over the years. And as I say, Rough Ride is a wonderful sports book. Even if you've no interest in cycling, it is a great sports book. In the same way, I don't know if you ever read Andre Agassi's book, Open, about his life in tennis. You may have no interest in tennis. Brilliant sports book as well. So my thanks to Paul Kimmage. That's it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane also, who helps out on the show every week. Want to get in touch with me at any stage? You can email me screentime at newstalk.com or you can tweet me John underscore Fardy. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Next week, there will be no podcast. There will be a radio show. I'm taking a little holiday, so there won't be any podcast. There will be a radio show next Saturday evening at 6. So tune in to hear about that. So... Thank you. 
Enjoy the remainder of your weekend and the May Bank holiday and I'll talk to you all very soon. Thank you for listening.